for our brief message uh, tonight. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. Thankfully, we're not in any rush working through the armor of God, and we'll just cover what we can, another phrase or two tonight in good uh, Lloyd-Jonesian fashion, as we mentioned this morning, and uh, pick it up next week. Spiritual Warfare Strategies, part three, looking at God's equipment for the battle of the ages, the contest of all times against the arch enemy himself, the prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him, right? His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. But uh, Luther also tells us, remember in that hymn, uh, about his uh, uh, wiles and schemes, and left to ourselves, we are powerless, right, um, against Satan. Now, it was in 2010 that another George Barna Christian survey was done of uh, professing evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians in the Western world, uh, and they were asked one question, agree or disagree with the following statement, the purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. It's a short sentence, the purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. Guess how many evangelical, professing, Bible-believing Christians said, agree, more than half. More than half said the purpose of life is enjoyment and personal fulfillment. I love the shock of Chuck Colson after this was released. He lamented, come on, if the last 50 years has taught us anything, it is that consumerism and the pursuit of unbridled pleasure does not lead to happiness, but instead to personal and societal misery. Look around, in other words. Tell me that the divorce rates, the family breakdown, the rising debt, the crime stats, the ethnic strife, the suicide rates, the global tensions are good fruits of the modern myth of hedonism and selfish pursuits. Brothers and sisters, look around at the spiritual landscape today. Does it not strike you as at least a little bit ironic and, and, and how satanic, how brilliant the devil's schemes, how clever his tactics, how malicious are his methods when you look around. A few examples. Getting Christians rebuking the devil. You know any believers like that? Was that maybe you once? An expert in rebuking the devil while you were a slave to materialism and greed and love of money in every fashion but you had your method down. How clever, our enemy, making churches experts in deliverance ministries while those same churches are in bondage to worldliness and every form of secularism. But they got the deliverance technique down. How deceitful the devil is, giving believers this illusion of power while they've never been weaker. Never been weaker in holiness more ruined marriages, homes a wreck, business ethics, godless. How clever Satan's schemes, leading so-called Christians today across Africa in Zionism by the millions to, to shout out and stomp Satan lower while in fact he treads them down with all kinds of syncretism and witchcraft and ancestral worship and fear and superstition. And one more example, how subtle Satan's schemes 
when we see men in solid reformed churches and seminaries reading Puritan books and good theology on the one hand while hooked on porn on their smartphone on the other hand, coming to churches like this one. How clever are Satan's schemes? How subtle his tactics. Put on the full armor. Stand firm. Let me remind us where we've been. Number one, the first tactic or spiritual warfare strategy against the enemy. First of all, get the strength. Verse 10. Second of all, wear the armor. Verse 11. A. Third of all, where we ended last week, know the enemy, verse 11b through verse 12. Know the enemy, and we said four, four things about him from the text. He's crafty, he's vicious, he's vast, he's wicked. Number four, probably all that we'll cover tonight, number four from verse 13, stand in victory. Stand in victory. Look at the text there, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Get the strength, wear the armor, know the enemy, and tonight, number four, stand in victory. I remember a few years back while studying this passage and the relevance struck me at one point, uh, somewhere in the middle of the week, let's call it a Wednesday, uh, in a chaotic house with five kids of our own and the next day 14 people were arriving I think it was a mission team that was visiting from the states and we just happened to have three extra kids around as well friends that thought they would pay a visit on such a timely occasion and the geezer busted that morning and the maid happened to have a dying relative and needed the day off and one of our kids who I'll leave unnamed was screaming because of a sore tummy and it struck me Tim, the real battle is not the geezer. It's not the sore tummy. It's not the absent maid. It's not all the guests arriving tomorrow. The battle is for your faith. Will you trust God or not? Will you obey or will you disobey? Will you walk in love or will you walk in selfishness? That's the battle. Keep your armor on. Stand in victory. Look at the text there in verse 13. Therefore, Paul says, uh, reiterating what he's already said in the previous verses, in light of this vicious foe who is crafty and vast and vicious and wicked, in light of our enemy, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God. Nothing more is needed. Believing that God has provided all the protection we need so we never have to be wounded or scarred or injured or defeated by his schemes. But notice, he doesn't say you just believe that God has provided the armor, fashioned and furnished in heaven, praise God. But notice, you you don't just talk about the armor, you don't just study it or meditate it or gaze on it or think about it. You have to put it on. As we'll see in the coming uh, verses, in the coming Sundays, Lord willing, verse 14 to 17, piece by piece, We walk in specific Christian obedience. We have to learn to put off every ungodly attitude and and every sinful action and to put on, as Paul already taught in chapter four, this is now just a different way of saying it. Now with a military metaphor rather than a clothing metaphor, we are to put off unholiness and to put on a life of trust and a life of obedience and Christ-likeness in every attitude and action. Christian, how's your armor fitting tonight? Praise God, I know many of you 
and you stand firm. However imperfectly, you're progressively pursuing Christ. Your progressive sanctification is reality. You didn't just put the armor on at salvation. You are showing it in sanctification. And then there are others here tonight, and your armor is hanging loose. You look like David in Saul's armor. Or your armor is battered and beaten. It's been hours or days or years since you've really lived a righteous life, had a truthful belt, worn the shoes you ought to, secured the helmet as you ought. You are a sitting duck, and you are about to be slain in cold blood because your armor is rusty and worn out. The old Puritans would talk about declining graces. How are your virtues? Are they in function? Are your Christian duties in practice? Or do you have declining graces? And you, you, you don't love the Lord as you ought to. You're not as holy as you used to be. You're not as diligent in the word and prayer and Christian fellowship as you once were. You have worn out armor. And you've gotten tired of putting it on. And Satan has you in his crosshairs. Paul says a second time here, take up the full armor. Don't forget your spiritual disciplines. Why, we wonder, why all this effort? Why has God guaranteed full insurance coverage and complete protection and the best of armor? Notice, not as an end in itself. It's not just so we can show off at a Christian fashion show. (laughs) It's not so we can have armor day at church. It's not so you can compare with Christians around you to see who has the most trendy weapons and the most impressive uh, arsenal. No. What does he say here in verse 13? Take up the full armor of God. Notice the, the panoply of God as we sing about in the hymn. The complete equipment, the, the, the full set of God's armor so that, why? You'll be able to resist in the evil day. That's why we put it on. That's why we walk in obedience. We grow in godliness because the battle is real. As we saw in the previous verses, the enemy is vicious. The stakes are high. What other alternative do you have, Christian? Would you like to list your other options for me? Either you stand, either you keep shining the armor and keep putting it on day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, fighting sin, or Satan has you and you continue to decline and you prove you were false and you're damned in the end and you were never truly saved because you didn't wear your armor and you thought this was a playground as we saw last week when it's a battleground and you were on a little swing set when Satan had a nuclear missile armed at you. Take up the full armor so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. Scripture tells us these are evil times. It's an evil age. Back in chapter 5, remember, redeem the time, verse 16, because the days are evil. This in-between time after Christ's first coming, before his second coming, Satan has a long leash. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, 1 John 5, 19. Realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. 2 Timothy 3 tells us, perilous, dangerous days that we now live in. I don't care how optimistic and positive and cheery and chirpy you are. I I appreciate those kind of people. But the fact still remains, in God's eyes, we live in a fallen world that is not G-rated all ages 
The gloves have been taken off. Evil abounds. These are the last days. And it is a crooked and a perverse generation. Philippians 2 tells us. The battle is real. But Paul is even more specific here. That's a backdrop. But notice he's more specific in verse 13. He says, put on the full armor of God. Take it up so that you will be able to resist it in the evil day. It seems that he's thinking of certain seasons of acute temptation and spiritual attack for the believer. Those times when sin and Satan are especially targeting you. I remember once in Kenya on a mission trip when my parents dared to let this 19-year-old go out into the, up into the inland or the, the bush hours north of Nairobi in Kenya on a mission trip. And I was there for a week, and then the mission leaders, the Kenyan dear friends, put me on a bus to come home, and I didn't know a soul. Uh, thankfully, Kenyans have good English, and I learned a bit of Kiswahili. And uh, I was from a bus to a taxi to another taxi to get to my parents' place in Nairobi. And I was in this squished little taxi, and there was this attractive Egyptian woman next to me being quite friendly. I'm 19 years old. No one would have known. Dad and mom didn't even know what day I was getting back from this village excursion. And I just remember that satanic sense of, get thee behind me. God have mercy. Those evil days, those tempting moments. Remember Luke chapter 4, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Satan knows when you are weakest, Christian. He is a master of setting the perfect trap, devising the deadliest snares that will most prey upon your unique vulnerabilities, your besetting sins. Some people are fighters and he'll get you fighting. Some people are fleers and he'll get you fleeing. Some are uh, tempted this way, some are tempted that way. As we saw last week, when you least expect it, there are snares and there are attacks on every turn. Maybe times of reprieve, times of temporary calm when you are lulled into a false sense of security and you let down your guard. Wear the full armor of God so you'll be able to resist in the evil day. These are days without number. They vary as much as every Christian on this planet, Satan knows you, yes, you, and how it is that you are most vulnerable when you are most tempted, when you are most weak, and how your faith can fail, and how he can conquer your soul. But yet here we are tonight. You're sitting under the word of God. You have been a part of this marvelous worship service. You are, I trust, uh, unless you are unconverted, and we pray that tonight you would be saved. You've heard the gospel about 10 different ways tonight. But as a believer, you still have another chance. You're still alive. You may have lost some battles against temptation, but you have repented. You have returned. You stand. And the call here is to keep standing. Take up, therefore, the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day and, and having done everything to stand firm. I love the famous biography of Martin Luther by Roland Bainton. I think it's called Here I... Uh, I just forgot the name of it. I think it's called Here I Stand. Bainton says, The content of Luther's depressions was always the same. The loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. 
After a frightful crisis of faith in 1527, Martin Luther once wrote, For more than a week I was close to the gates of death and hell. Some of you can testify of those dark nights of the soul. I loved John Piper's testimony at the end of 30 or 36 years when he um, handed over to the new pastor and now has gone full-time into itinerant ministry with Desiring God. And everyone thought he would look back on great things accomplished, you know, 50 books written, uh, a massive church, and a seminary, Bible school, world travels, etc. And his whole testimony was, I'm still saved. I'm still saved. <laughs> the Lord kept me standing against every attack of the devil, against every evil day. Twice here in verse 13, Paul says that you would stand, that you'd be able to resist. Four times in this passage, these images of stand. This is how God defines success. This is, God spells victory over Satan and defeat of the devil, S-T-A-N-D. That's what we see throughout Paul's epistles, giving charges to the army of God. Paul was one of Christ's original lieutenants, one of the first commanding officers in the early church. He knew the only way for God's people to survive spiritual warfare and overcome all the evil onslaughts was learning to stand. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand. Next chapter, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Galatians 5, verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. We live in an age, we had this discussion on Wednesday night in our counseling class, probably come up again with Charlie's this coming Wednesday. Why are certain metaphors in the Bible deliberately feminine with rich imagery of what the Lord wants to convey and some are deliberately masculine? Men are never told to stand in battle like women. Women are to stand like men. Men do things that are manly and that's good for the whole church, including women. And we will not flatten that out in the name of some egalitarian culture today that says, oh, gender distinctions don't matter. Man up or Satan will whip you like a woman. That's what the Bible teaches. These are the metaphors that should grab us by the lapels and waken us to the battle out of our sleep and our slumber and our little playground toyland when we're in a real warfare that wages. Philippians 1.27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I'll hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Colossians 4, 12, Epaphras is laboring earnestly for you always in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For now we really live, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 8, if you stand firm in the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. Like Daniel, remember, before the decrees of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was unflinching and would not bow with his friends. Paul in Acts chapter 20 says twice in his farewell sermon to the Ephesian elders, we did not shrink back. We did not falter. We stood
I love the way that uh, Scripture calls us here not just to stand with your hands in your pockets. It's, it's actively holding your position. It's, it's holding the ground already taken, as I prayed a moment ago. In the face of satanic counterattack, it's uh, securing the ground that Jesus already won. I love the way that one writer puts it. It is clear why Christians are not called to go on the offensive against Satan. The first reason is that God has already won the battle. The second is that demons are still a potent force. Listen to this. In other words, there is no battle to win, and this is fortunate, for if there were, we could not win it. Do you understand? There is no further battle to win, and if there was, you'd lose. We would lose. Satan's too strong. The decisive victory, he says, has already been won by God in Christ. And the task of believers is not to win, but to stand. In other words, preserve and maintain what has already been won. The major victory has been achieved. But believers must appropriate what has already been gained for them against continuing assaults. And this is not automatic. Can I summarize it for you? As Wearsby puts it, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Isn't that good? We don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. Purchased at Calvary's cross. As another writer puts it so helpfully. Never once in the Bible, never in scripture, is the believer exhorted to seek out the devil or attack Satan or his demons. On the contrary, the devil seeks to attack the believer. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Peter tells us, for your adversary the devil prowls about like a roaring Lion seeking someone to devour. The believer has been given his marching orders by God, says this author. He is to glorify God in his living and carrying out of the Great Commission. As he happily carries out these tasks, he will not need to be looking for Satan. Satan will come looking for him. And when he attacks, what are you to do, Christian? First Peter 5, he's a roaring lion, therefore resist him. We have a whole generation of Christians that think resist him means say some magic words and and cast him out and go through a formula while they live worldly lives the other six, six and a half days of the week and have no knowledge of biblical progressive sanctification or basic theology. But they've got a quick little device for getting Satan off their back. Or so they think in their self deceit. James 4, verse 7, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is not special rebukes. This is not uh, special techniques. This is the resistance of a holy life. The unshakable display of an Ephesians kind of Christian who puts off sin and puts on obedience. Safely clad, standing firm with the, the Lord's full armor. In the face of such spiritual stability, Satan has no option but to flee and to wait for a more opportune occasion. As Konya mentions, as I told you before, his excellent book on demons, Alex Konya concludes, this biblical picture is unfortunately often ignored today. Popular books, TV preachers, DVDs, websites, megachurches often tell the Christian to engage in aggressive spiritual warfare, to attack Satan, give the devil his due. Many well-meaning but misled believers have accordingly laid their proper spiritual priorities aside and become preoccupied with demons, Satan, exorcism, and engagement of the powers of darkness. Warfare with Satan is quite real, he says, and it's the experience of every believer. However, God's plan is for the Christian to resist attack when it comes, instead of looking for demonic forces to battle. Losing this perspective is both unwise and dangerous.
That's why next Sunday, Lord willing, we will begin to unpack each of these six, or some would say seven, pieces of armor. I end with the great modern day illustration of standing, not just in a personal, though it was profoundly personal, but also in a more public fashion. One of the great victories of modern evangelical and reformed Christianity in our world. It was the 31st of August, 1993, when a 34-year-old man stepped to the podium and to give his inaugural presidential address at Southern Seminary. Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, at a seminary that had been taken captive by liberal, unbelieving scholars that were rapidly destroying the gospel witness of the seminary. And a 34-year-old man, Dr. Albert Moeller, gave his opening address entitled, Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. Moeller knew that something of probably of the the the... the attacks that waited for him in the years, the, the next few years of his presidency, Mueller had to fire some 80 or 90% of the faculty and they knew it was coming. This man will stand for the truth and my job's on the line because I will no longer unashamedly affirm the original doctrinal statement from 140 years ago when this seminary was founded. This new president will cost me, my job, my wife, my family will be fired because we will not sign as he's requiring us to sign. 80% of the faculty, mostly professing, probably many sincere, Christian, loving, sweet, kind, godly people, fired, there's the door, because you will not sign on the doctrinal, evangelical, biblical confession of this seminary from 140 years ago that this seminary is drifting from. He laid his life down. From the following years, he could not go into public. He and his wife were not welcome in any restaurant in town because they would be spat upon and cursed in any public setting. Praise God for his stand. This is what he said on that day in 1993. Moeller writes, spoke. He said, we can never measure our life and work in terms of activity and statistics. In the view of eternity, we will be judged most closely not on how many courses were taught or how many students were trained at the seminary or how many books published, but on whether or not we kept the faith. Does this institution and those who teach here stand for God's truth and do so without embarrassment? May we answer that question with the humble confidence of Martin Luther and say, here we stand, we can do no other. God help us. Praise the Lord for these heroic Christians in our day who have lived out this text. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Father, how grateful we are that we are not left to our own strength and our own devices and our own equipment. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. O oh Lord, left to ourselves, we are born children of the devil. We are born slaves of sin and 
shackled by Satan. But even when you save us and you set us free and you make us new and you clothe us with your armor, as we've heard testified so wonderfully tonight with Lorinda and with Michael, as believers, already we are safe and secure, but not yet are we home in heaven. And still we are called to keep fighting, to keep standing, to keep running the race. He who endures to the end shall be saved. He who keeps standing will prove his faith in the last hour. We are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies is never alone. But is evidenced in good works and a firm stance. Oh Lord, open our eyes to the battle that rages. Forgive us for our unbelief and for taking Satan so lightly and for not fully drawing upon your strength and for not using the armor of normal Christian living, the armor of daily holiness as we're going to be learning, the armor of personal and corporate godliness that is the best and surest and safest way for us to remain on the ground that Jesus won for us at Calvary and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because it is you who is at work within us to will and to do according to your good pleasure. Pray for any here tonight that are unconverted, that are not just battling with Satan, but they are captive to the devil. They have not begun to know your strength, your armor, because they've not received your gospel. We pray tonight would be the day of uh, the night of their new birth and that they would join us in the victory over sin and Satan that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Died, crucified, and risen and reigning at your right hand as our glorious champion and leader and the, the captain of our salvation who leads us in his triumph. In his victorious name we pray, amen. We